Welcome back for another episode of the Sales Development Podcast, powered by Tenbound, hosted by David Delaney. My name is James Bodden, here to introduce episode 198, featuring Nelson Gilead, author of Death of the SDR, Birth of Buyer-Centric Revenue. Now, if that book title doesn't let you know a little bit about what this episode is going to be all about, then I don't know what to tell you. This episode starts off with Nelson sharing his journey on developing the buyer-centric revenue model and writing this book, how he got to this point. David and Nelson dive into the ins and outs of the predictable revenue model and the areas where the model falls short from Nelson's POV and why he feels the predictable revenue model has become so prevalent. As the episode continues, Nelson breaks down the buyer-centric revenue model and its advantages in today's world based on some of the pitfalls that he mentioned when talking about the predictable revenue model. And Nelson goes deep on all of the pitfalls of prospecting. He holds no punches and really gives his honest view of the SDR role. At the 28 minute mark, David asks Nelson to define what quote unquote proper marketing is and Nelson's answer is super interesting. David and Nelson then go on to talk about the ideal way to set up your teams based on the buyer-centric revenue model and the way that organizations can thrive under the buyer-centric revenue model. This episode wraps up with a definitive statement from Nelson on the power of being buyer-centric. Nelson holds no punches in this interview talking about predictable revenue model, the buyer-centric revenue model, and if you enjoy this episode, don't forget to give us a rating. Head over to 10bound.com, but for now, get ready for episode 198 of the Sales Development Podcast. Hello, 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 everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Sales Development Podcast. I am super excited for this one. We are going to dive in with Nelson Gilliatt, the author of Death of the SDR and Birth of the Buyer-Centric Revenue Model, Demand Generation at Center Base. Nelson, how are you doing today? Hey, David. Hey, everyone. I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. We've got a lot of exciting things to talk about, so look forward to diving in. I'm super excited about this. So this book came across my radar screen, and I was like, wow, okay, this is a statement, right? Because (laughs) there's a lot of different books on the topic, but I hadn't seen one that goes into this in so much depth, and I'm excited to talk to you about it. So first and foremost, How did you get into this world and take us up to the point where you wanted to write the book? Yeah, for sure. So I started in B2B about five years ago at a company called Western Union Business Solutions, which was the B2B division of Western Union, so financial services and software. I started off as an SDR and then became an AE. And then I joined a very small startup called User Gems. I was a marketing tech startup, so selling to marketers where I was this, you know, sixth employee for a year. So I wore all the hats, AE, CSM, product marketing, demand gen, content marketing. And now I'm the demand generation manager at another tech startup called Centerbase, which sells into law firms. So I've been in the trenches and I've seen a lot. And, you know, when I was at Western Union Business Solutions, I saw effectively the predictable revenue model which is the model that I challenge in my book. And we'll talk about that. 
And I saw a lot of the problems that were in it. And I was trying to come up with, you know, the solutions and fix it at Western Union. I was kind of like this annoying person at Western Union trying to change things. And I had no authority. And then I went to User Gems. And that was kind of a big pivotal moment for me where I joined a five-person startup and I was able to see what you can do without the predictable revenue model straitjacket when you have to, you know, build from the ground up and you can't, you know, you have no money to waste or time to waste in a startup. You have to be smarter. And so I think we had a very, I saw what good marketing looked like and what proper sales looked like or can look like. And that was sort of like the beginning, you know, of it all. And that's when I started to write the book. And so I've been writing this book for about 14 months, did a lot of research, spoke to a lot of marketers and sellers, and I published it about two weeks ago. And so what we're going to talk about today, you know, just to kind of set the scene a little bit and put some stuff on the table, and we'll dive into it later, are five things. So kind of keep these five things in the back of your mind. Five things that I think are dead in B2B marketing and sales because they're outdated and they're harming everyone, buyers, marketers, sellers, you know, the companies and the VCs or the venture capital firms to the extent that they adopt these five things. And therefore, these five things should be eliminated. But these five things are, one, the predictable revenue model, and two, prospecting, three, the sales assembly line, four, commissions, and five, quotas. And you know we'll talk about the predictable revenue model, but essentially, it's prospecting and the sales assembly line. So you know, point two and three kind of fall under point one. Got it. Okay. So just for people who aren't really familiar with it, tell us about the predictable revenue model and what is it and how has it been adopted? And then, you know, what are some of the issues? Yeah, great question. So the predictable revenue model is the marketing and sales model that a lot of B2B companies are running on to some extent. And the predictable revenue model was, well, I would say codified in 2011 in a book by Aaron Ross, based on his experience at Salesforce in the early 2000s. So this model really is about 20 years old, trying to kind of solve problems 20 years ago. And a lot has changed since then, obviously, right? You know, buyer preferences, technology, marketing, but the model has not. And the model really wasn't that great back then. You know, I think maybe it was a really bad Band-Aid. And that Band-Aid is now infecting the wound. So it's getting more and more harmful as time goes on. And as I say, it's harmful to everyone, to marketers, to sellers, to buyers, to companies, and to the VCs, to the extent that it's adopted. And so, you know, the essence of the predictable revenue model and why I think it today, it's really setting up marketers and sellers for failure. It's two things. And as I mentioned before, the first thing is prospecting. And we'll dive into what that is and why I think it's bad. And the second thing is the sales assembly line. You know, and just to kind of explain what that is, you know, you have various different specialized sellers that the buyers kind of tossed from one seller to another. So in theory, it's the AE slash CSM split, but in practice, there are often a lot more sellers involved beyond just those two. And we'll talk about that. Got it. And why do you think that so many companies adopted the predictable revenue model, especially like in the software industry? It's essentially like almost like a standard practice. Yeah, for sure. So I think there you know, were legitimate problems back then that companies were trying to deal with. And then along comes someone who says, hey, this worked at Salesforce. And Salesforce is like, 
well, Salesforce. I mean, I don't know if I need to explain that to anyone on this call, but they're the premier, you know, SaaS tech company. And so kind of everyone wanted to sort of emulate that, right? It's like you want to be like Mike if you're a basketball player. So they're like, okay, well, if it worked at Salesforce in the early 2000s, then surely it should work for us. And I think as we go through what prospecting is and what the sales assembly line is, it'll become very clear what predictable revenue was trying to do, what it was trying to fix. And I think why it failed to fix it and why I think it was kind of a really bad band-aid. And you know, when you don't fix a problem, and let's say you go to the doctor and they just load you up with morphine, it might feel a little bit good, but you don't understand that really that the problems beneath that are festering and they're getting worse. And so I would say that companies have grown despite the predictable revenue model and, you know, buyers buy despite it, marketers market despite it and sellers sell despite it, not because of it. And so, yeah. And so what I would say is as we go through and become clear, but essentially like where predictable revenue was at and why he kind of created it, you know, when I say it's two things, prospecting the sales assembly on it's so because, you know, sellers at the time had not only to do sales, you know, helping buyers to evaluate and, you know, if they purchased to be successful, but on top of doing sales, their actual job, they had to do bad manual marketing from the pre-internet era, the sort of marketing drudgery, you know, telemarketing in particular. And we'll talk more about that. And obviously they like were unable and unwilling to do that. They hated it. And the results were dismal and you had to do it constantly and predictably in, in large quantities to produce any results, let alone results that were ROI positive. And therefore it was noticed, well, you know, it doesn't make sense for salespeople to be doing this. So let us create a new role, which is really a marketing role called the SDR to do hundred percent of this bad manual marketing drudgery and we'll give it a new name called prospecting. And we'll go more into this because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding as to what prospecting actually is. And let me say here at the outset, because a lot of what I'm saying is going to be like a little bit of a shocker and put people off. My book, you know, The Death of the SDR and Everything is not a knock to SDRs for the sake of putting people down. You know, I've been in the SDR role and like many, I hated it. I'm doing this because I'm trying to elevate marketing and sales. We have more productive and fulfilling careers. And we do more of the stuff that we like and a lot less of the stuff that we don't like. But that is how SDRs kind of came about. That was the first thing that predictable revenue, you know, called for, for SDRs. And then the second thing was a sales assembly line. So it kind of sort of applied, you know, this idea of specialization was well, like, okay, well, we have all this manual work that people are doing, even though a lot of them shouldn't be doing it, whatever, let us divide and conquer, let us apply, you know, Henry Ford's factory model and create an assembly line of sellers. And so you'll have this seller handle that aspect of the sales process. In other words, they'll handle this aspect of the buyer and seller relationship, and then another seller to do the other. So in theory, you would have an AE who would do the initial sale, help a buyer to evaluate, and then you'd have a CSM who would help that buyer if they purchased to implement and be successful. And then in practice, that led to a lot more you know, subdivisions where you would have the AE and then you'd have a demo specialist and then you'd have an implementation specialist and then a cross-sell specialist and upsell specialist or renewal specialist. And it's kind of gone like a little bit bonkers. And so that is sort of where predictable revenue is out sort of mentally, you know, 20 years ago. And this is still by and large the model today. So 
you know, what I'd like to do, David, unless there's some questions you have, or if you want to take something in a different direction, is kind of break down prospecting. And then, you know, as we break down prospecting, I have some, you know, tactical advice for SDRs as to what you can do today, you know, based on what you can control to kind of improve your situation and what sales leaders and what, you know, SDR leaders can do. And then after prospecting, you know, we can go into the sales assembly line and then we can go on to quotas and then finish up with, I'm pretty sure everyone's pretty excited about commissions if that suits. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Let's dive in. So, you know, the list of dead or harmful, you know, aspects, prospecting, the sales assembly line, quotas, commissions, and then definitely what's the buyer centric model in that. So let's dive in with prospecting. If the salesperson, you know, doesn't want to do prospecting, then they created the SDR role that what now? So just to kind of paint the picture, I think David's the type of person that, you know, he goes right for dessert at the beginning of the meal. And I think he's right to do this because it's like, I'm knocking these things down, <laughs> but then what am I replacing it with? Right. And so just to sort of show what that looks like, the buyer centric revenue model throws the predicted revenue model out, which means it throws prospecting out and it throws the sales assembly line out. So instead of prospecting, it's proper marketing. And all marketing, as we'll talk about, is outbound. The only thing that depends is whether or not it's buyer-friendly, it's ROI-friendly, it's scalable, it's relevant, it has compounding yield, and prospecting is not that. And we'll talk about the difference between prospecting and proper marketing, but it's to get rid of, eliminate all prospecting and only do proper marketing. And then the second thing is to get rid of the sales assembly line and have a one-to-one relationship between a buyer and seller in which a seller is responsible for the buyer throughout the duration of the relationship. So they handle the initial sale, they handle implementation, adoption, cross-sell, upsell, and renewal, and there are no handoffs. And yeah. And so, and then in addition to that, and this is aside from predictable revenue, so I'm not going to attribute these ills to predictable revenue and get it twisted, but I think these two things that we're saving at the end are really harmful to everyone, and that's commissions and quotas. And so these are two sales practices that have been around for a while, heavily debated. I've got some new, I think, insights into this, but I think they both should be eliminated. And so you'd get rid of the commissions and instead pay sellers a proper salary and bonus. And we'll talk about why that is. And then for quotas, basically it's to kind of get rid of quotas as we know it. Like it's okay to have, you know, there's certain circumstances in which I would say quotas are acceptable, but the problem with quotas as we'll tuck into is that they are short-term, obviously tied to commissions, which I think we should get rid of. They're publicly displayed or the attainment is publicly displayed relative to your peers. And they're considered like the only sales performance metric. And like, I would say that they're not the only one. There's various other ones that need to be taken into account. And we'll discuss why that is. But, you know, I think there's a lot of issues with quotas that need to be addressed. So that's what the buyer-centric revenue model is all about. And I think it'll kind of make sense as we sort of go through yeah. And it seems like it, it all kind of ties back to the quotas and commissions, because if the sales rep doesn't want to prospect and doesn't want to do the manual labor because they want to figure out how they can make as many sales as possible and hit their quota and get their commission. So they want to offload all that work to somebody else, then that precludes them from wanting to be a full cycle sales rep. Because back in the day, when I was first coming up in sales, there was no 
sales assembly line. So the salesperson had to do everything, but this is 20 years ago, right? This is before all this stuff came out. And so like I've lived through this whole thing, the predictable revenue model was really interesting because as a sales rep, like I never wanted to, you know, spend the time doing the manual labor of, I just wanted to sell stuff so I could make my quota and collect my commission, right? Because that's what we do as salespeople, right? So it seems like it's all tied in to that. That's damaging that relationship with the buyer probably. Yeah. Commissions and quotas is part of it. And they're all related and interrelated and tied together, which is why they all have to go. And fundamentally, commissions and quotas are designed to pressure the sellers in order to pressure the buyers. So it harms sellers and harms buyers, and therefore it harms the actual outcome that they're allegedly striving for, which is profit, which is revenue, which is the long-term buyer relationship. But even if we just struck out commissions and quotas, and if we kept prospecting the sales assembly line, we would still have massive issues and harm to sellers and to marketers. And so that's why it all has to go but it's good that you know, you've know you noticed the interconnectedness of these things. And as we go through, they become even more clear. Got it. Okay, let's dive in. So, you know, let's walk us through how it all, you know, is, you know, relates. Yeah. So let's start with prospecting, which I know a lot of people on this podcast, because there's a lot of STRs maybe listening in, are very well familiar with. But there's a lot of things I think will kind of shock you about what I think about this. So what I would say is kind of know the truth about what prospecting is and what the SDR role is. So to me, prospecting is code word for bad manual marketing from the pre-internet era that annoys buyers. And primarily it's telemarketing, but that can also include the kind of like the crummy email sequences, the LinkedIn messages and bribery through gift cards. And that's what I think what prospecting is. And so the SDR role is 100% dedicated to that. And again, it's primarily telemarketing. And I emphasize marketing and telemarketing because I think the SDR role is disguised as a sales role deliberately. And they do that and they made it a often required stepping stone for aspiring sellers to get into sales because otherwise they'd have trouble filling this role. So I think there's a lot of smoke and mirrors that go on, but don't get it twisted at SDRs. It's a marketing function to generate demand or pipeline for sales. You're setting appointments for sales. And so it doesn't matter whether or not you report into sales or not. Half the time, I think it's sales. Half the time, it's marketing. But it doesn't matter. It's a marketing role. And so what I'll say about prospecting is that prospecting fundamentally defies how modern buyers want to and can be marketed to. Buyers are really annoyed by all this intrusive outreach over the phone, over email, over LinkedIn message, you know, or physical mail. They do not care for... The, you know, the irrelevant quote unquote personalization about where they went to school or live or that they like cats or that you sent them a video with their name on a whiteboard or that you're bribing them with a gift card in exchange for a demo. And they're also really annoyed with manual qualification and demo scheduling. They want to qualify themselves on the website and book a demo directly with the seller from the seller's calendar. And so there's a lot of friction that kind of goes on in prospecting that kind of annoys buyers. Now, I also want to talk about sort of prospecting is very resource intensive. It's enormously time, labor, and capital intensive, which is why a lot of people outsource it, which doesn't make it good. It just makes it less awful. And because of you know the effect this has on buyers, and I think it's very clear to, for people who are doing this to see that it produces a lot of low quality junk leads. So it produces a lot of low quality junk leads 
that convert less, have longer sales cycles, higher cost per acquisition, higher churn relative to proper marketing. So it's not to say that by doing prospecting, you can't book meetings and you can't even generate revenue. It's that there's a massive, like when you compare that relative to proper marketing, there's a massive difference. And, you know, just prospecting is just, the results are really dismal. And so in addition to that, there's an opportunity cost where I think that to the extent that you do prospecting, you are crowding out investment in proper marketing. So marketing has to spend a lot of money, you know, hiring SDRs, training them, coaching them, management tools, lead routing, da 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 da, da all the tools, process, whatever. That's a lot of money that's being diverted away. Now, I would also say the effect that this has on talent should not be underestimated. I think a lot of people can relate to this. Prospecting is undesirable. It's laborious and it's, you know, it's got a very low probability of producing results. So it's quite fruitless. And that's why, right, it has to be done constantly in large quantities and predictably to kind of amount to anything. So it's very natural that those who do it hate it and they experience really high turnover, lower tenure, lower performance or, you know, whatever quota attainment and whatnot, and low job satisfaction. And I think it turns off a lot of people to sales because again, it's disguised as a sales role, even though it's a marketing role. Don't see a lot of people kind of coming out of college, you know, gearing up to essentially be a telemarketer. And I don't think a lot of parents, you know, aspire for their kids to be like that. I certainly did not aspire to that. And when I realized kind of when I was 23, what the hell I ended up getting myself into because I wanted to be in sales and I was in this SDR role, I was like, oh my God, this is what they, you know, meant. But anyway, and so I fundamentally think that prospecting is kind of, you know, it's a denigration of the marketing role and to the extent that sellers do it or AEs do it, which I think is completely inappropriate. I think it's denigration of the sales role. So what I would say, you know, again, to the extent that anyone does prospecting is the extent of their self-harm. You know, it harms your growth. It makes it slower, harder, more costly. Any sort of sales leaders that want to, you know, or marketing says that kind of want to elevate their, you know, profession or ensure the success of their people as well as their own, I would fight against any or all calls to do prospecting and focus entirely on proper marketing. And let's talk about proper marketing because again, all marketing is is outbound. The only question, right, is is it buyer friendly? Is it scalable? Is it relevant? Is it ROI friendly? And you know, marketing needs to be very careful with you know being accountable to revenue, to qualified pipeline, to conversion rate, sales cycles, ACV, you know, cost per acquisition, churn. You can't put garbage in. You can't just be generating a whole bunch of of leads. You really need to make sure that you're being efficient and effective and bringing quality in. And proper marketing, what that looks like, there's so many different methods that you can do nowadays. And for example, that could be you know buyer self-service to the extent that they want slash the freemium model, which is known as PLG. That could also mean podcast like this one. That could be LinkedIn organic. So posting on LinkedIn, commenting, that could be thought leadership, that could be ads, you know, on paid social, LinkedIn, Facebook ads, Instagram ads, YouTube ads, whatever. That could be events, that could, you know, summits, conferences, whatnot, webinars, word of mouth, which is really huge right now. You know, a lot of people at buyers are buying because they're hearing it, you know, through the spread of word of mouth to their peers and various online networks and stuff. Really good content marketing with good distribution on social, in-product promotion, having a compelling narrative about you know, why you know, your buyers need to act now, review sites, case studies, partnerships, influencer marketing, community, referral campaigns, recycle campaigns. I mention all of these because there's so much that marketing can do nowadays. And this is how buyers are actually buying. This is how buyers want to be marketed to. And so there's a plethora and it's all outbound. 
And so this idea that like, unless we go and annoy buyers with this kind of bad manual marketing from the pre-internet days, they're not going to come in the door is false. Proper marketing woos buyers, you know, gets buyers interested regardless of company size. They will come to you all the same from proper marketing because you market to people. And buyers' marketing preferences don't change just because of how many colleagues they have at their company. So prospecting is slightly less harmful in the enterprise motion because the massive cost, you know, of prospecting is offset by the deal size. So, you know, I would say to any SDRs, you know, to be very careful, like especially new SDRs, to kind of know fully what this role entails, because it took me a little while to realize what that is. And maybe you're listening in because you want to up your game. And so here's sort of my advice. Understand that this role is repetitive marketing drudgery with dismal results. And you'll be required to bang out a certain amount of telemarketing calls. You'll get endless voicemails, rejections, avoidance from annoyed buyers. A lot of the leads you produce will be junk and low quality. Your performance will be publicized in a dashboard against your teammates for a quote unquote healthy competition. You'll be hounded by short-term quotas, which many people fail to hit. That'll negatively affect a sizable chunk of your compensation because it's tied to commissions. And commissions, as we'll talk about, are bad. You know, it's unpredictable. You have no certainty if and when or how much you'll get. And every time you do get a buyer interested in, you know, speaking with or taking a meeting, you know, the seller gets to do the fun part and makes more money, is more appreciated. So just know that that's what you're signing up for and that the role was invented, as we talked about earlier, because sellers didn't want to do it. And that was kind of offloaded onto the SDR back in the day. And so my advice at the end of the day for SDRs is to escape from the SDR role ASAP and into a more productive and fulfilling role. It'll be easier for you to switch into other roles within marketing, such as demand gen, which is what I do, and which is essentially, you know, the modern day SDR role, I would say, or that's the role within marketing that properly generates demand to put it properly. Product marketing, content marketing, or other roles within marketing or switch to sales or to revenue operations, which kind of people behind the scenes, you know, supporting both marketing and sales. And so that's what I'll say about prospecting. I know that was a lot and there's probably some cognitive distance going on, but I'll pause there before maybe moving on to the sales assembly line and see if you got any questions there, David. Yeah. So question, there's a couple from the high level, if you're doing proper marketing and there's not enough sales pipeline, is it essentially you've got maybe the wrong marketing team or, you know, you're not doing some of the things that you mentioned correctly. Like what should you do in that case? Cause I think the knee jerk reaction is, well, hop on the phone, start doing inefficient marketing essentially. That's a great question. That's a marketing problem. If marketing is not generating demand for sales, that's a marketing problem that needs to be fixed. And so whatever your markers are doing, they're not doing the right things and or you have a sales headcount problem. So you have too many mouths to feed and you need to reduce your headcount. Now, if any sales leaders are listening to this, I hear this you know, from some sales leaders, don't make this mistake. There's a big problem because of the predictable revenue model where marketers are KPI'd or they're primarily held responsible for generating MQLs, which I wouldn't even call them leads. It's a fancy way of saying the contact information of uninterested buyers, the contact information of uninterested buyers. They don't want to speak to sales. They have not explicitly requested to speak to sales. That's what marketers are kind of like tasked to do today, whereas sales is on the hook for revenue. So you have this big misalignment where marketing produces a lot of junk leads because, hey, that's what we're asking them to do because they need to generate MQLs to feed kind of the SDR beast machine. And then 
obviously that produces a lot of junk and then sales is kind of left hanging. And as we know, a lot of sellers aren't hitting quota, something that's like 70 plus aren't hitting quota. It's really bad. But the mistake that sales leaders make is not defending their salespeople and pointing the finger rightly at predictable revenue, rightly at marketing and saying, Hey, this is a marketing problem, or maybe it's also a sales problem because we have too much headcount. We got to figure out and like solve either the headcount issue or fix marketing, but do not make the mistake of throwing your sellers under the bus and force them to do prospecting, AKA bad manual marketing drudgery, which is unnecessary and counterproductive. And so, yeah, don't put that onto your sellers, protect your sellers from that. Make sure you do fix marketing and or sales headcount. Got it. And then with the inbound leads that are coming in, in your model, they should all be followed up on, you know, depending on the quality by single sales rep. And so if you see some of the inbound leads are not followed up on, or they're just like stagnating, what do we do in that case? Because that's usually what the inbound SDR would do. Yeah. So the thing with the quote unquote inbound SDR, because what we're talking about here is manual qualification and manual demo scheduling of an interested buyer that wants to speak with sales. And so the way to do that is automatically on the website, which is what buyers want, you know, just like you maybe on ZocDoc, book a doctor's appointment, you, you know, put in your details, whatever questions you want to answer, and then look at a seller's calendar and book a meeting, boom, done. And, you know, not tell buyers, Hey, book a demo, but actually it's not a book a demo. It's really like, you know, an SDR is going to call you and, or email you at the blue and ask you a whole bunch of questions. And then maybe you'll get a demo. No, do that qualification, that scheduling automatically on the website, reduce that friction and get that meeting ASAP. Now, if for some reason a seller is not taking those meetings, that's an issue for sales. Like why was that seller not taking those meetings? Now, do you have too few sellers who can't handle all the demand. Well, maybe we need to hire more sellers, which is a good problem to have, <laughs> better than the other way around. But yeah, it's not to insert this, you know, I would say unnecessary and counterproductive mid-layer that buyers don't like and is on yeah. Friction. Yeah. Okay. And then with the SDRs, like there's this whole pipeline, basically like the people pipeline, right? Of people who are getting into the tech industry for the first time and they might have been studying like liberal arts and stuff like that. And, and they're just like, okay, I need a job basically. So I'm going to get into SDR work. They don't have the skills necessarily to go into some of those other positions that you said. So I guess if there's no entry point on the go-to-market side, like does that just close the door for people that have no background or skills or how do they get into tech? companies if they can't you know, get in as an SDR? Yeah, I would disagree with that completely and say that you can and should be able to get an entry-level job in marketing or in sales or in revenue operations as you do in any other department, HR, finance, IT, product, whatever, coming out of college. And for marketing and sales, you might even say, hell, maybe even out of high school and you know, certain candidates, but you, know, you don't need a, yeah, a you know. True. You go into sales, the companies are supposed to train you. You're supposed to learn on the job. You're supposed to kind of do some self-learning as well. What companies need to be thinking of is that they are taking really promising young talent. Hell, I was an SDR one, you know, I'm half promising. I'm not that bright. 
And that's wasted resources because that's talent that could otherwise be deployed more productively. So you're wasting people like soldiers are wasted in battle, charging uphill into a machine gun nest needlessly, you know? And so companies are wasting this young talent who are graduating from college. And for some reason find themselves when, if they want to go into sales in a essential telemarketing role. And so I think it's a massive waste. You can go into marketing, you can go into sales. And so my advice to SDRs earlier about switching into a more productive role as soon as possible in marketing or in sales, you can do that, you know, with no experience. Like I know sometimes they put experience on resumes. It's, it's all kind of hocus pocus, you know, typically by HR, but you don't need it. And so any role that I've had in B2B, you don't need experience for just the right, you know, attitude and ability and, and potential is what I would say. So I think we are wasting young people and, you know, putting them through the cannon fodder. And then also we're turning off a lot of people who look at that job description of an SDR and say, hmm, yeah, you know what? I'm going to go do something more fulfilling. You know, I don't want to deal with that. And so I think we're turning off a lot of talent too. It's true. With sales, I mean, one of the things about sales is if, you know, you don't actually need like a higher education or anything like that, if you're just good at selling, then you get a sales. You don't have to necessarily, you know, go through this assembly line. And marketing too. Sorry to cut you off, but, you know, a content marketing manager is basically someone who just kind of like writes blogs or social media posts or stuff like that. So if you're a good writer, check that out product marketing manager is someone who's just trying to communicate through writing again, the value of a product in various different forms on landing pages, on a website, things like that in advertisements. So it's more writing. And then there's roles within marketing. Yeah. You really don't need, you know, the entry level, you don't need an experience and even graphic design and, you know, to be video production. A lot of marketers are now leaning in heavily to video, you know, or demand gen. I think the entry level demand gen role is demand gen specialist. And, you know, you don't need, yeah. So really I encourage you guys, there's a lot of entry-level opportunities out there that are more productive and fulfilling within marketing and sales and even revenue operations. I think it's like, you know, RevOps analyst or something like that is probably the entry-level title to kind of be shopping for. Got it. Okay. And so with the assembly line, you know, you cause that whiplash with the buyer, but, you know, tell me more about the quotas and the commissions. You know, this is really interesting. Yeah, I do think it's important actually to just rest a little on the sales assembly line before moving on to that. And I'll wrap that up briefly. Buyers want a one-to-one relationship with a seller that's accountable to them throughout the whole relationship. They really don't want to be tossed from one person telling like, who's my point of contact? And, oh, well, you're making the promises, AE, but then the CSM is going to deliver it. And then I got to rebuild the whole relationship again with this new seller. And this new seller has to learn everything that the old seller knew and everything's just going to take longer and be more difficult. And so I think if we introspect and we look at how relationships influence our own purchasing decisions in our own personal life, from your barber or your doctor, or your real estate agent, you've got one person that you typically want a strong relationship with. You don't want to kind of be tossed on the hot potato. And I think sellers are also very good at recognizing when buyers change during the relationship. You know, if your champion quits during the sales process, that could torpedo the whole deal. And then for some reason now, sellers or sales leaders aren't as quick to recognize the risk when we deliberately initiate a change in the buyer relationship with sales handoffs. And I think sellers should also want a a one-to-one relationship with the buyer. It's more ownership and responsibility. It's more growth and efficacy. It's more fun and satisfaction. You have more expertise and you'll be more successful. A happier buyer means a more successful seller. And the seller will be more well-rounded 
and productive because they've got, you know, all this knowledge, you know, of how to help a buyer throughout their whole journey. You know, it's really about building your book of business and not just being on this assembly line. And I think one of the data points is we see how AEs are suffering under this assembly line with the high turnover, low tenure, low productivity, low performance, so many missing quota, whatnot. And so I think, you know, sales leaders really need to examine whether or not we've set up these sellers for failure with the predictive revenue model that begins with repetitive, you know, marketing drudgery, the SGR role, and that it ends with a partial responsibility and ownership, you know, with the sales assembly line. And sales leaders themselves who are on the hook for the predictable revenue model in part, they're also suffering because their leadership tenure has been declining. In 2010, the average VP of sales tenure was 26 months, and that has declined every year as of 2017, which is a little while ago. Now that's just about 19 months. I think that's even less now. And don't forget, predictable revenue came out in 2011. So that is the sales assembly line in a nutshell, why we should get rid of it. Harmful for buyers, harmful for sellers. Any questions on that, David, do you think from the audience before we move on to quotas? Yeah. So if you're looking at the VCs you know, or the board type of angle on this, and they look at it and they go, well, you know, for all of our investments that we've made that have gone well, they've had the predictable revenue model plugged in. And so let's just leave well enough alone and just do it again. Right. Like, and you talk about this in your book, but there's several companies out there, emerging companies that have used the buyer centric model, right. And been super successful. Yes. What I would say to that and to the VCs, again, fundamentally, I think companies grow despite all these things because of the business model in SaaS, you can afford to burn all this cash. The way that companies are misproperly valued and sold in, you know, there's a bit of, you know, screwed up stuff there in how VCs buy and sell companies, how companies are growing or how they calculate the profitability of companies. So there's some things that are messed up, but fundamentally buyers buy despite this model because they want the software. And so they're willing to put up with a bunch of bull crap. Sorry for the cursing. And that sellers will sell despite this stuff because you want to make ends meet and you don't want to give up. And market is the same. And VCs are kind of also kind of cool to blow a lot of money needlessly and sort of artificially, I think, inflate the real value of companies. So I think there's a lot of artificial inflation of a company's actual profitability. And there's a little game of hot potato that goes on between buying and selling companies and how they're valued. So you know, if you're a VC and you want to be smart and you know, you want to, you know, this is a massive competitive differentiator, the buyer centric revenue model. So the people who adopt that first, you have a massive leg up on the competition. You'll grow better. You'll grow faster. You'll grow more at less cost. And so with these VCs, that means more money to invest in more companies to return a greater return on your shareholder for your CEOs. That means you don't have to freaking you know, sell your kids and your wife and everything. And your grandmother in order to produce a company that's going to take 20 years you can probably you know grow your company faster quicker and you know easier so yeah i love it okay all right so this is like the sacred cow right the, the quotas and commissions i mean let's do it why get into sales if i'm not going to you know age 20 years in one quarter and make a lot of money Exactly. And I think this is a real blight on sales because I think, you know, as we know anecdotally, a lot of people are turned off to sales because of quotas and commissions, and rightly so, because again, their purpose, despite all the alleged justifications, which we'll talk about, is to pressure sellers to in turn pressure buyers. And that's a real turnoff to sales. And it's one of the reasons why I'm no longer in sales and why I want to be in marketing. Now, the problem with quotas, okay. So we mentioned that a little bit earlier. 
Yeah. The problem with quotas is that they're short-term primarily, you know, the monthly or quarterly when they should be annually and reduce this unnecessary pressure of constant quotas. And again, the way that the buyer inside relationship is long-term, the way you get profitability is having long-term relationships with buyers. And so you need to eliminate the short-term mindset and eliminate this pressure selling. And that can really be felt by buyers and turn them off. And so, you know, another really bad problem with quotas is that they are publicly displayed. Their attainment is publicly displayed relative to your peers on the dashboard. I think that should be a private matter between a seller and a manager, not something to, you know, put against your peers for quote unquote, healthy competition. You're a sales team, you work together. You know, I don't see other people's performance on my marketing team or whatnot. I don't see their, you know, when they were doing performance reviews, I don't see any of that. That's between the manager and the employee. Another thing is that or another big primary thing that's wrong with quotas, it's that it's not the only sales metric or performance metric. And this is really important because this will tie into commissions. So let me stress this. Everyone kind of like grip your seats here. A seller can only partially influence a buyer's decision to buy. Okay. They can only partially influence a buyer's decision to buy. And therefore they are only indirectly and partially measurable for revenue slash quota attainment. The seller can do everything right, but it's still the buyer's choice to buy. And the buyer may choose not to for a variety of reasons unrelated to the seller and outside the seller's control. You know, perhaps the product lacked a feature or the buyer was unqualified and slipped past marketing's nets or the, or the buyer lacked appetite or funds or the buyer changed jobs, whatever. Or maybe the buyer bought despite a lousy seller because the product or marketing is amazing. There's, you know, no competition, whatever, and the buyer's need is dire. So, you know, I would say if anything, marketing probably exerts a much greater influence on the buyer's decision nowadays than sales. Marketing is bringing the buyer, at least in the initial sale, but oftentimes in the cross-sell, upsell, or the renewal, the buyer is exerting a much greater influence these days. But nevertheless, marketing product and sales can only each partially influence a buyer's decision. And so when a sales leader is analyzing the performance of their sales team, or even a CEO is analyzing the performance of sales, you need to measure holistically and not just quota attainment. So you need to be looking at things like the number of customers, the number of deals, your conversion rates, your sales cycles, your average deal size, the cost per acquisition, the cost per acquisition, payback time period, churn rate, retraction revenue loss, expansion revenue gain, professionalism, teamwork. We're talking now more about the individual seller's performance, but that is sort of like how holistically sales leaders should be evaluating their sellers. Okay. And so now obviously we'll talk about commissions in a bit, but I think a big problem with quotas is that they're tied to commissions. I think we should obviously eliminate that because I think fundamentally it does not make sense to withhold effectively 50% of a seller's compensation pending attainment of an outcome, the buyer's decision to purchase, that a seller has no direct and full control over. And so, yeah, I think that kind of, we'll talk more about that when we get into commission. So really the solution, just to kind of tie it all up, have annual quotas that, you know, are one of several, many different performance metrics. Don't publicly display them or public space quota attainment on a dashboard, keep that private between the seller and manager. There's one other thing I wanted to say about quotas. A greater emphasis should be applied on the sales team's collective quota and not just the individual quota. So it's about a team here. Keep the eyes on the prize. The sales team as a whole needs to hit a number. And so, you know, I think the unnecessary focus on a quota, part because people think it's the only metric that matters, 
whatnot on a seller, it just, that can cause, you know, sellers not to help other sellers and just to kind of focus on themselves. And, you know, you want it to be a good team and stuff like that. And so also, and I think that's probably, we'll talk a bit about a bonus structure, but I think that bonus can comprise a few different components, an individual component, a team component, and perhaps a company component, a company-wide component. You know, I'm talking about here, goal attainment. So, yeah. So I know that was a lot because I kind of wanted to rush and get through to commissions, but any questions on quotas before we go on? Yeah. It seems like, how would you set up the org chart? Like if you came in and you had a completely blank slate and, you know, we didn't have to even think about marketing or sales in the traditional way, you know, because it sounds like we're all on the same team. We're trying to make sure that the buyer, you know, has a great experience. They get the value and they stick with us for life. That's really the main goal behind all of this stuff. How should we set up the teams in order to do that? If we could just take all this old school stuff off the table. Yeah. So I would eliminate all specialized sales roles and just have a single seller. And so give people that option to have that and move into that or switch into other roles if they don't want that. So all specialized sellers should turn into a single seller and be trained. So, and then you'd get rid of, you know, any prospecting, whether it's the AEs that are doing some extent of that or SDRs. And so in which case you would get rid of SDRs and you would offer them an escape route, which they would very much be glad for to other more productive roles as we talked about in marketing and sales. And I think sellers would thank you. SDRs would be the first ones to thank you as well. So it's very simple. The departments that you would have in a company, you got your product, you got your marketing, you got your sales, you got your customer support to handle kind of like day-to-day issues or problem solving for existing customers, you know, things like that. If a seller needs any technical expertise beyond, you know, what they can handle, maybe they can ask their manager, maybe they can ask a seller that might have some greater expertise in this technical matter, or they can ask someone in products to say, hey, like, you know, this buyer is really, you know, complex technically, or, you know, I'm just not clear on this technical part of our solution. Can you help me and train me here so I can handle that in the future? So, and it simplifies the org model immensely because right now you have bloated and massively complex org models with a lot of misaligned teams because they got different KPIs and different processes and different tools and different management. Da, 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 da. So you got your SDRs, you got your AEs, your CSMs, your demo specialists, you know, or sales engineers, whatever you call them. It's massive organizational bloat. So it simplifies things a lot. And I think that helps people who are leading companies to operate more efficiently and effectively. So this is the buyer-centric model that's going to come out when your website's ready. (laughs) And hopefully this podcast will be after, but you've got a website where you're going to be documenting your manifesto. Let's talk commissions. And I mean, that's the thing. Like, okay, when do Mm. I get paid, right? It's hard work. Yeah. So let's get into it. So yeah, commissions are really harmful to sellers and to buyers. And so before we talk, and I just had some notes here that I just want to make sure that I can reference. Now I'm changing gears a little bit, two secs. Yeah. So let me just say that the problem isn't how much commission sellers actually make. It's that commissions itself are inherently bad because they are inherently unfair deceptive, unpredictable, improbable, and instill unnecessary and counterproductive pressure on a seller. And therefore, it's harmful to buyer sellers and the companies that use it. So eliminate commissions and pay sellers properly with a salary and bonus. 
The alleged justifications for commissions, primarily one, that it attracts and motivates sellers, and two, that it reduces the cost and risk of employing sellers, are just smoke screens, which in fact are not true to disguise the real hidden purpose, which is to, again, pressure sellers to pressure buyers while unfairly paying sellers by withholding effectively 50% of their compensation pending an outcome, which again is the buyer's decision to purchase, that the seller has no direct and full control over and only partially influences that. So for the moment, hold this in your mind. Commissions are a false carrot and stick that sellers are taught to yearn for. And once the truth about commissions is more widely understood and more sellers catch on to that shell game, that house of cards is going to fall. And it'll start with the best sellers who are going to want a proper salary and bonus. And because of the best sellers, they'll command the highest salary and bonus. Now, we already talked about how a seller can only partially influence a buyer's decision to purchase. And the only way a seller can influence a buyer's decision to purchase is controlling the inputs, their expertise, their helpfulness, their likability and trustworthiness, the quality of their demos, their question handling, the follow-up proposals, et cetera. As a sales leader, the only way that you can help those sellers is with the right hiring, the right training, the right coaching, the right culture, the right process, the right tools, the right metrics, and the right compensation. Now, the popular compensation model today for sellers is half salary and half commission. So 50% of a seller's compensation is guaranteed and predictable. That's your salary. And the other 50% is variable and unpredictable. That's your commission, provided quote attainment. Now, let me stress, commissions are not icing on the cake like a bonus is. Commissions are half the cake that you may never eat. They symbolize effectively 50% of a seller's missing salary. It's basically half now, half later when the job is done. Oh, and don't forget, you know, that outcome of the job being done is largely outside of your control. Now, a dollar of commission and a dollar of salary are not equal. I'll repeat that. A dollar of commission and a dollar of salary are not equal. Commissions are overwhelmingly unfavorable in terms of risk, predictability, probability, simplicity, transparency, taxes, and loans. Commissions are unpredictable and erratic. You don't know if, when, and how much you'll receive. Commission structures are typically complex with various accelerators, decelerators, thresholds, clawbacks, timeframes, and nuances that are really hard to understand and change every year. And commissions are taxed higher and make it harder to get a loan because it is variable income. They take time to generate depending on your ramp up time and your sales cycle, which can be six months or more. Commissions reset to zero whenever your quota resets, which is typically monthly or quarterly, again, short-term quotas, which are problematic. And commissions depend on variable factors, again, outside of a seller's control. So I think they're unfair. So at the worst, I think because commissions are a deceptive ploy to lure unsuspecting sellers with promises of big or unlimited sums of potential money, of potential money that, again, a dollar salary is not equal to a dollar of commission. And that once sellers take the bait, commissions are used as a manipulative, false carrot and stick to foster pressure selling through greed and desperation. And buyers definitely feel that. They feel that commission. It makes them distrust sellers and exposes them to pressure selling, all sorts of bad tactics, sandbagging, whatnot, you know, selling to bad, you know, over-promising, under-delivering. And I think it really you know, screws with sellers and it turns people off to sales. And I think it's very ironic that these companies that are trying to pursue predictable revenue and cash flow are trying to woo sellers with the opposite. You know, no other department is paid commissions. And I don't think they would want a commission. If they did, there'd be like a revolution or a revolt. These, you know, com- these companies themselves, they don't compensate themselves with commissions from their customers. They don't pay their vendors with commissions. And so it's only sales here that is being screwed. And I think it's very, you know, coincident or rather incidentally, 
sales leaders, VPs of sales and chief revenue officers at young companies are kind of waking up to this fact, partly because equity works in a very similar fashion. And they realize they should not rely on that, especially since like sellers, they share short tenure. And therefore, many sales leaders are fighting for salary and bonus. And so I think sales leaders should think twice about paying their sellers with the very same uncertainty and risk that they themselves wish to avoid. And so there are a lot of examples of B2B companies that have eliminated commission and have done really well for themselves. That includes Microchip Technology, CultureAmp, Pluralsight, Monday.com, Backblaze, and Legion Logistics. There's also plenty of B2C companies that have also done the same, like Charles Schwab and Tesla. Yeah, so pay your sellers a salary and a bonus. That is going to be super attractive to, I think, the best sellers, that predictability, that fairness, all the different things that we talked about. Yeah. So interesting. It's almost like the commission plan was invented, you know, million years ago. I don't know when, but it was essentially, you know, we don't have the money to pay you. So once we get the money in, then we'll pay you. Right. And it's like, so you go sell the product, we'll invoice it, get the money in, and then we'll pay you. And it's like, yeah, I mean, these companies are very well funded and they don't have to think like that anymore because it's, you know, not a sketchy situation like it was whenever commissions were, you know, created. Yeah. I mean, it's a totally different ballgame. And that's why, like, yeah, I mean, like, look, it used to be 100% commissions. And now we've sort of settled like halfway. We're sort of like sitting on two sides of the same fence with 50% of your compensation as commissions. Let us get rid of it entirely. It should have died a long time ago. Let us make the sales profession respectable and attractive and take that unnecessary and counterproductive pressure and unfairness and unpredictability off of a seller so that they can take care of your customers when they're not worrying about their paycheck. And neither is the buyer worrying about the seller's paycheck. They don't feel like they have to worry about the seller's livelihood and distrust that the seller is going to you know, pull something, you know, pull the wool over their eyes. It reminds me, there was an old New Yorker cartoon where the salesman was talking to a prospect and said something like, you know, it's got all these great benefits and features. And also my car is being repossessed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, dude, I don't care. And you know what? Let me say one other thing because, yeah. you know, one of the alleged justifications for commissions is that it saves companies money and reduces the risk of hiring unproductive sellers. So let me say this. Commissions are more costly and risky to a company than a salary and bonus. Commissions are more costly and risky to a company than a salary and bonus. Consider the risk and cost of turning off potential talent to sales, of attracting the naive, desperate, and financially irresponsible, I think, who, who just aren't, aren't suspecting about commissions, of driving away, I think, experienced sellers, sellers who tend to be older, have greater financial obligations, kids, marriage, whatnot, and don't want that unpredictable revenue. So they go into management, leadership, or other positions. And those tend to be experienced sellers tend to be your best sellers. Consider the decreased seller productivity performance and tenure, which we're all very familiar with. You know, consider the cost of turning off buyers with your desperate, pushy sellers, of wasting all that time and money coming up with convoluted commission structures and constantly changing them, of calculating, tracking, and paying out commissions. And last but not least, of the financial unpredictability of variable payroll. It's a variable cost that companies cannot predict. And so it's a massive mess, which is why a salary is very simple. And a bonus structure can also be simple as well, which is why a lot of companies do it. Now, a significant value of offering your employees a salary is that the companies take a risk on employees, that employees take a risk on your company. And they don't go off on their own and do their own thing, their own company, or they don't go work for other companies. Now, the only way that companies can 
remove the risk of unproductive employees, whether sales or whatever, is by hiring the right people to do the right roles, to do the right things, the right ways, the right technology, with the right training, with the right coach, with the right metrics, the right compensation, et cetera. If someone's not performing, then you find out why and you fix it. You either coach them or you redirect them or you, know, you let them go somewhere else. You don't withhold 50% of their compensation at the outset and then make that 50% of the compensation really screwy with commissions and all the problems that comes with it. So again, if we're to have the best interest of sellers, buyers, companies, whatever profitability, pay sellers fairly, like every other department, the salary and bonus. I love that. This is a red pill. You've taken the red <laughs> pill, everybody. It's just called the book, The Red Pill of B2B sales. This is great. So, and all that stuff's in the book, right? So they can get that. That's right. The book is available on Amazon. It's, you know, Kindle, it's free. If you have Amazon prime, I'm working on the paperback, trust me. So if you're a little bit old fashioned, bear with me and follow me on LinkedIn, Nelson Gillian on LinkedIn. I'm dropping a lot of content posts and comments and stuff about this stuff. And I think, you know, you'll get some more digestible bites and I'm getting better at explaining this stuff too, you know? So maybe as time goes on, especially with my LinkedIn, where it's shorter, it'll be more concise. Oh yeah. No, if you're looking for Nelson, he'll be in the comments of anybody that posts about prospecting <laughs> or STR stuff. You've been good about that. Is that your PR strategy? I'm going to get in the comments. Partly. I think there's, you know, LinkedIn's a great place to have respectful discussion. And for the most part, I really appreciate everyone's engagement and please weigh in respectfully. Yeah. It's a wonderful community out on LinkedIn. And that's where a lot of people are going to learn. And it's also, so yeah, it's one of the proper marketing tactics is LinkedIn organic. <laughs> <laughs> this is interesting. So, and I brought up, this is a post from Aaron Ross that came out of a week ago. I don't know if you saw this. It says, my two cents in the game, a long time and observing humans and growth, however much you hate outbound calling, emailing or outbound anything, whether as a buyer or seller, number one, it works. Number two, it's going to continue to work. And number three, it'll evolve, but it's not going away. So I think the next stage is to- Well, you should read my response. Oh, are you in there? Okay. I said, okay, so here we go, guys. Respectfully disagree, Aaron Ross. If there's one principle in good business, it's being buyer-centric. A lousy buying experience induces buyers not to buy at all or as fast or as much. Companies that are not buyer-centric are less profitable because growth takes longer, is more difficult, and costs more. They also expose their flank to competitors that are buyer-centric. Product teams get this and achieve more profit by being buyer-centric and providing a better user experience. Marketing and sales, meanwhile, are losing profit by not being buyer-centric and providing a lousy and unnecessarily complex buying experience. Is it because marketers and sellers don't get buyer-centricity? No, most do. Rather, it's because they're jammed into an anti-buyer-centric model that forces them to do things that buyers hate, like telemarketing and sales handoffs. What model in essence calls for telemarketing via SDRs and buyer handoffs, the SDR AECSM split? That model is predictable revenue, which is what most companies operate on for now. Many marketing sellers are waking up to that fact that the predictable revenue model doesn't work and is dead because it's not buyer centric. I love it. Thank you for listening to the Sales Development Podcast, the only audio forum 100% focused and dedicated to sales development, with your host, David Delaney. Please be sure to subscribe to the show on YouTube and take a moment to leave us a review on iTunes. Your support makes our show possible. If you are struggling with your sales development program, contact us at 10bound.com for a no-obligation exploratory call. Again, that's 10bound.com.